You know, now that we are back from the feast, we've got another 12 months before another feast. And I would like to ask you, how are you going to use the next 12 months? How are you going to use the next 12 months to prepare for the incredible calling that God has given us to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God? I want you to think about that as we go through the sermon today. Yeah, we come back from the feast where our focus was on the kingdom of God, fellowshipping with other people, uh, enjoying the beautiful weather that God has provided. But we come back from the feast and all of a sudden, bang, we're back to reality. And the problems that we left <laughs> are still there when we come back in many cases. And we've got to deal with these things. But I'd like you to think for just a little bit as we get started, what is your primary focus in life? As you come back from the feast, what is going to be your primary focus for the next couple of months, <clears throat> next 12 months? If you're like most people, your focus is going to be on your job, on your family, on your problems. You know, as we get older, we tend to focus on our physical problems because we just ache. I think I may have mentioned this joke before I left, but you know, this older couple was waking up one morning and the husband reaches over, grabs his wife's hand and said, uh, uh, good morning. She says, don't touch me, I'm dead. He says, what do you mean you're dead? You're talking. Don't touch me, I'm dead. How do you know you're dead? I woke up this morning and nothing hurts. <laughs> You know, that's that's true, that uh, if you've got arthritis or you got this or that, you wake up and you, know, you went to bed with the pain and it's still there when you wake up in the morning. But circumstances tend to focus our minds on the issues that we face. I get to get down to the courthouse tomorrow and report for jury duty. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. So I'm not real keen about doing that, but uh, these things happen. And so we're back into reality very quickly after the feast. And reality focuses our minds on ourselves, our jobs, our worries, our this, our that. But, you know, we were at the feast, and our minds were focused outward. Our minds were focused on the future, on the coming kingdom of God. But, you know, this is part of the plan that God has. He brings us into his church. We come into contact with God, with his church. We learn about the plan of God. And that plan of God is not focused inward. However, if you came out of a Protestant background, the focus was probably on your faith, your prayers, your God, your church, your salvation. Are you going to be in the kingdom of God? And yet God's plan and purpose encompasses all mankind. I remember when I came into the church down in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I was attending graduate school down there, and it was, it was an interesting experience that I met guys and a few girls uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, who had gone the whole way through college, actually been the whole way through high school, the whole way through college, and never been out of Jackson, Mississippi, or out of Mississippi. There was a radio station down there that broadcast that said, good morning from whatever the call letters were, the crossroads of the central south. In other words, the center of the universe. <laughs> but to meet college kids that had never been out of Mississippi because they never had any reason to go out of Mississippi. <laughs> Everything was there. And I'm not putting it down. It was just this was the way it was. Uh, <clears throat> 
But so when I started attending church down there, the pastor realized this. So he would have holy days in Baton Rouge, combined services, then he'd have holy days down in New Orleans, combined services, to get people to go from one town to another. <laughs> it was a mind-expanding, a physically expanding experience just to go. <clears throat> You know, I lived other places where, in fact, even down in the Caribbean, I think, that some people grew up on the islands, but they had never been across the island. <laughs> it was just the way it is sometimes, that our minds tend to focus on our own little world, and yet God calls us into the church to get our minds focused on his plan and purpose, which encompasses all mankind, everyone on earth. It focuses outward, not inward. And this is part of our experience coming into the church, to focus outward, to develop the mind of God, to think bigger. You're familiar with the scripture in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But in verse 4 or 5, it says, let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. And that mind encompasses the plan of God. You know, the scriptures are the mind of God in print. God has a big plan, and he's calling people to become big-minded, big-minded. You know, Abraham was big-minded when he and Lot got in a little tussle, or their servants did. And Abraham said, look, the whole land is before us. And Lot says, I'm going to take this city over here. It's nicer. <laughs> Abraham says, fine, fine. You go in that direction. But as I heard, I think, the first trip that I made to the Caribbean, and we're the Bahamas, I think it was. I mentioned the taxi driver. said, this is really beautiful. <laughs> taxi driver says, well, all that glitters is not gold. <laughs> In other words, come live here, and it might not be quite as exciting. <laughs> he says, and this was back in, I don't know, 20 years ago. He says, but, you know, we run out of water down here every once in a while, and they have to ship the water in. But he said, you know, it didn't used to be that way. He said they used to require every home that was built to have a, a, a cistern so you would catch rainwater because it rains quite a bit. He said when they stopped requiring that, then we began running out of water because we weren't planning ahead. We weren't thinking. But God's plan is focused outward, and God wants us to develop his mind. You know, we've been called to become Christians. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a man with a mission. A man with a mission. He had a vision. He came to this earth for a reason. And you can pick this up in some of the scriptures. Just look, let's look at a couple quickly this morning. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 2, this is where Jesus' parents took him up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It says that uh, they did that every year. In other words, he was taught to do that as a child. Luke chapter 2, beginning in around verse um, 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So Jesus was taught to keep the holy days. And the Catholics will tell you, give us a child until they're six years old, and he will always be a Catholic. Because we will imprint various things on their mind. Jesus was taught by his parents to keep the holy days. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem, according to the custom of the, fe of the feast. <clears throat> when they finished the days, they returned, but the boy Jesus uh, lingered behind in Jerusalem. Now, you might 
want to accuse Mary and Joseph of being uh, negligent parents. But they knew their son. He was 12 years old, and they probably figured, well, he's not with us, but he's probably with Uncle Joe or Aunt Sue or whoever. And it could have been later that night when they camped or they stopped for uh, um, to spend the night somewhere. Where's Jesus? Well, I don't know. Let's go check with the relatives. Well, he's not with the relatives. Where is he? <clears throat> Verse 44, but supposing to have been him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. Then they sought for him among the relatives. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem. Now it was that after three days, so they spent several days looking around for Jesus. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them, 12 years of age, listening to the scholars of his day and asking them questions. 12 years old. When they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Why didn't you tell us? Look, you and your father and I have sought you anxiously, but noticed his answer. Wasn't disrespectful. He said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He had a mission. He had a mission. He had a focus. He had a purpose. Several other examples in Matthew 4, verse 19. You don't need to turn there, but you might want to check it later. When he began calling his disciples, he says, follow me. And he was addressing this to fishermen. He said, follow me, I'm going to expand your world. I'm going to broaden your perspectives. I want to make you fishers of men, not these little fish. You know, there are people fishing down in Branson and the river down there. There are people fishing up in Glenwood Springs and Colorado River. As one fellow said, I apparently not very good. I dangled my lure there for an hour and a half, nothing bit. He said, apparently I don't have the technique. <clears throat> I was fishing one time in Canada, I remember it was in June, and up there they have these, uh, what they call shad flies, they uh, lay their eggs and then they die, and the, the water is just covered with these things. And we were fishing one night, and I noticed these fish swimming along the surface, kind of sideways, and just <laughs> sucking up all the stuff that was on top. So I had a big worm, that I threw it out there, right in front of the one, he came along, here was my lure, he went underneath it, came up on the other side. <laughs> I was fishing one other time up there, pretty clear water at a waterfall. I was casting out, winding in, and I could see these pike. They're probably about this long, following my lure and turning around and going away. Apparently, I didn't have the technique or the right lure or something. But Jesus said, look, you guys are fishermen. I've got something bigger in mind for you. I want to make you fishers of men to be able to reach people. People are important. He came with that mission. In Matthew 4, 32, he talked about, I came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel about a coming government of God that's going to take over the governments on this earth, a bigger perspective. Jesus Christ was a man with a mission. He had a purpose to come back and reign on this earth and restore all things. When I first came in, <clears throat> when I moved to Mississippi to go to graduate school, my major advisor was the chairman of the anatomy department at the medical center. And he gave me a tour <clears throat> through the medical center and through the department. And I was introduced to a fellow by the name of Dr. Hogue. 
He was a retired department chairman. We walk into the room and said, uh, Doug, this is Dr. Hogue. He's a retired chairman of the department, and this is his empire. It was a room, about 15 by 15, filled with antiquated instruments and some old glassware, and he puttered around in there. And I was learning about the kingdom of God. And this thing flashed before my mind, is this where I want to be in 40 years? Puttering around in a little room with old antiquated instruments, or do I want to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God? The answer was a (laughs) no-brainer. I want to be in the kingdom of God, not sitting in a room with some antiquated equipment and people kind of kind of acknowledge, well, Dr. Hogue or Dr. Winnell, how are you this morning? (laughs) God has called us to expand our perspectives, to focus on a real future that's coming. This was the vision that Jesus Christ had. This was the vision that he conveyed to his disciples. This was the vision that excited thousands of people that heard their message until that vision was lost. About the second century, Edward Gibbon in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, mentions this idea, this concept of reigning on this earth as kings and priests was first treated as an allegory. Well, it's just a story. You know, it's not real. It's just a story. And then later was discarded as heresy by what became the Catholic Church. And if you read Catholic literature, they basically say that the Catholic Church is the kingdom of God. No, it's not. If it is, we're in trouble. Especially you read the lives of the bad popes in the Middle Ages that you bought individuals, bought the office of the papacy. Uh, If you've been to uh, Salzburg in Austria, the two biggest buildings in Salzburg are the bishop's palace and a palace for his girlfriend. And it's common knowledge. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as many Protestants have heard, is in your heart. It's not there either. Jesus Christ is coming back to set up the kingdom of God, a government of God on this earth. That was what fired Jesus Christ. That was what fired and motivated the apostles. That's what motivated the early church. Gibbon says that this was the driving concept, the driving concept that motivated the church for the first two or three centuries until it was discarded. First as an allegory, well, it's just a story, and then later as heresy. And that's why the churches of the Protestant faith and the Catholic faith don't talk about it today, because it's been thrown away. Have you caught this vision, that's the question I want to ask, of the coming kingdom of God? Does that motivate you? Is that the motivation that will drive you and motivate you for the next 12 months to prepare to become part of the coming kingdom of God. You know, my goal as a young man was to get a combination PhD, MD, and be a doctor and then teach in a medical school until I found out there was a bigger vision, (laughs) a bigger vision. And I was no longer excited by the vision that I had, but I was excited about the vision that I'd called, you know, that God has called us to begin to understand.
that you and I can be there and be part of that. You know, in Daniel 2.45, you may check it later, but Daniel is explaining a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had about four world ruling kingdoms. And after he gets done explaining that, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is sure, excuse me, the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Daniel was convicted. Jesus Christ and the disciples were convicted. Are you convicted? You know, the direction of my life changed whenever I began to understand that vision. I'm sure that your direction in life changed when you began to understand that vision. Or has it changed? See, this is the temptation we come back from the feast to get bogged down in our own personal problems as opposed to staying focused on that vision and not paying attention to. And we have to pay attention to certain things, but not getting bogged down and focused on issues that are really irrelevant, that want to distract us from that vision. Let me just talk a little bit about Jesus Christ. Why did he come to this earth? Now, he was a man with a multi-purpose mission. Some people today want to just focus on one aspect of that mission. But it was really a multi-purpose mission. You can jot the scriptures down, look at them, but think about them. He came to become the Savior of this world. The Savior of this world. John 3.16 is a scripture that Protestants use all the time. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was part of the gospel. You're not going to die and just disappear. You've been called to have eternal life, to live forever. All the aches and pains and so on, when we get a spirit body, you're going to think back, you know, I was so crippled up with this or that or the other thing. But, you know, that was in a previous life. Now I've got a spirit body. Had a church service out in western Kenya one time, a little village. And uh, as we were walking into the building, here's this guy laying on the ground. He had elephantiasis, I think, on one of his legs and couldn't see for I was just, He was a mess. And people were just stepping over him, walking around him. And I would have loved to just laid hands on him right there and change the whole thing. But he's going to get up and walk around at some point in time. He's going to have a totally different life. You know, Jesus Christ and his disciples healed people, and it was exciting to people. It was motivating But Jesus Christ came to convey a message to save the world, become the savior of the world. John uses that phrase a couple different times. John 4.42, Christ came to become the savior of the world. And this is part of the gospel, part of his mission. He came to die for the sins of mankind. Again, there's some people that don't want to include this as part of the gospel, but Paul does. 1 Corinthians 15, first couple of verses, just to notice. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. The gospel involves salvation, being saved from destruction. Verse 3, I delivered you first of all that which I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, 
And he rose again on the third day. <clears throat> so Paul is talking about this is part of the gospel. That's why Christ came. But you go back to Mark chapter 1, you see another aspect of Christ's mission. <clears throat> what did I say, Matthew? I meant Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This was, again, part of his mission, part of the message that he came to deliver, the good news, the gospel. <clears throat> It says, now after John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So the gospel includes the coming kingdom of God. It includes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here as a representative of that kingdom. Repent. And that word repent means to turn with sorrow from a previous direction and go in a different direction. To turn with sorrow, you repent, you change, you, you develop a different focus in your life. And my focus was medicine and teaching in a medical school. And I came to realize there's a bigger world that's going to last forever. That doesn't mean you quit your jobs and you, <laughs> you go out in the street corner and start preaching to people. No, we have to survive in this life. And we can learn all kinds of lessons as Mr. Stroud was talking about, those lessons can be transferred from where you are to where you're going to be. But he says, repent, change your life, and believe in the gospel. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to set up a government that you can be part of? Is that a focus for your life? Are you preparing for that? This is why God has called us. Let's look at one other scripture. <clears throat> We're to preach the gospel to the world, as uh, Jesus told his disciples in Mark sixteen fifteen. So you go into all the world and preach the gospel. But let's go to Matthew chapter 10. And just notice this is a multi-purpose mission that Jesus had. He had a lot of things on his plate, a lot of things to do when he came. Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse 1, it says, when he called his 12 disciples together, he gave them power over unclean uh, spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. Then down in verse 6, he says, um, <clears throat> verse 5, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, at least not yet. They did that later. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So as disciples... Of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to preach the gospel to the world, but also to the lost sheep of the house of Israel who've lost their identity. The chosen people of God. He chose them to be an example. They turned away from God, lost their identity, uh, but they were still blessed because of the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're living in the midst of those promises. And we're going to be held accountable as a nation for turning away from God when he blessed us incredibly. And we've got to deliver that message. You know, America, Britain, South Africa, Canada, and some of these other nations will need to understand why they're going to bear the brunt of the tribulation. It's one thing to be a chosen people and enjoy the blessings, but with those blessings come responsibilities. And when we, as a quote-unquote Christian nation, turn away from God, God is not going to be pleased. 
And part of our message is to deliver a warning message. And yet there are people today that talk about, well, we don't want to talk about the bad news. We just want to talk about the good news. God loves you. And Jesus loves you. And if you love Jesus, everything will be okay. We don't want to talk about the bad news. And yet Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 is part of the warning that Jesus Christ gave and his disciples are to give and his church is to give today. One other aspect of this mission we read about in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. These were things that Jesus Christ came to the earth to do. It was part of the vision that he had, part of the sense of mission that drove him. Luke chapter 1. He's talking about the mission of John the Baptist in this particular case. And it's built on, and he was referring to basically Malachi chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6. You go back and read Malachi 4. It's talking about an end time context. But he's saying that John the Baptist would do these things, and the implication is John the Baptist did this prior to Christ's return, but that someone else or some organization would do this prior to Christ's second coming. Verse 16 He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17 He will also go before him, that is John the Baptist, or this. Other person or organization will go before him, Jesus Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know, Elijah kind of came out of the woodwork and began preaching about, you know, if you don't uh, get rid of these idols and obey God, there's not going to be any rain and all these things are going to happen. I'm sure people say, who is this guy? <laughs> Where did he come from? How does he know those things? He was a prophet of God. That's who he was. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. I remember when I was proctoring a lab in medical school. I was walking around trying to help students with various things. I heard these two guys talking. They had heard Ted Armstrong on the radio the night before. I said, who was that guy? <laughs> He's talking about the United States going down the tubes and about Europe coming back. And Who is that guy? People probably reacted to Elijah the same way. Who is that guy? Where did he get this information? I remember talking to some new people that were had come in contact with uh, the Global Church of God at that time, and they were listening to the program in Phoenix, Arizona. And I think our program was on like 3 o'clock in the morning or 3.30 or something like that. But this guy was telling me, I, I get up, whether it's every day or every weekend, whatever it was, to hear the program. I said, what did you think of the program? We said, they're, they're good, but I like that old guy. <laughs> I like that old guy. He really gets to, <laughs> He really lets them have it. Elijah was probably kind of like that, this old guy <laughs> that was letting everybody have it. But he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, emphasizing the importance of the family. You know, today the women's lib movement says, you know, you don't need men. Kids don't need fathers, but they do need fathers. And men and women are important. But... The prophecy is, you know, the work is going to be doing those things, turning the disobedience to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord, prepared to rule on this earth with Jesus Christ as kings, as queens, as teachers. This is what we've been called to prepare to do. It's great to go to the feast and enjoy good food, enjoy beautiful weather, uh, or go to the beach and enjoy things there. 
but we're there to prepare to rule with Jesus Christ. You know, Acts 3, verses 19 through 21, it talks about a time of refreshing is going to come. A time of refreshing. When there's going to be a restoration. When everything's going to be restored and put right. Again, my question to you would be, how can you use the next 12 months to prepare to do that? Now, you can use the next 12 months to save your second tithe and go to Hawaii, if that's your mission, or to go to some exotic place. And it's not wrong to think about that, because these are mind-expanding experiences. You go to the Caribbean, many of those people can't afford to leave the islands, and they rejoice with whoever wants to come down and spend the feast with them. It's that way in many developing countries. Whereas we have so much, and they have very limited means in many cases. You know, we get uptight if our state comes and it's not done just to a T. We send it back. But there are places that would love to have what we send back <laughs> because they can't afford to be picky. You know, if we can just understand that, and, and the traveling around for the feast, I'd encourage you to do that as you can. You know, get outside the United States. And see what life is like there. But you can use the next 12 months to prepare and grow. Let me talk about several areas that you can think about, study, and prepare to participate in, in the coming kingdom of God. If you turn to uh, Revelation chapter 11, notice what Jesus Christ is going to do when he comes back. You know, we're not going to go to heaven, sit on a cloud, play a harp, and just wander around the streets of gold in heaven. We've been called to do a job. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, talks about what's going to happen in the coming kingdom of God just after Christ returns. Revelation chapter 11, beginning verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, And we talked about this on the Feast of Trumpets. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Jesus Christ is coming back to reign forever. You know, we've got problems with our government in this country. There are problems with governments in other countries. Jesus Christ is coming back to reign forever. Notice down uh, here in verse 18, the nations were angry. He's not going to be welcomed. And your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. There's a time of judgment coming. But there's also a time of reward coming when Jesus Christ is going to reign along with the saints. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is what is coming, brethren. Are we prepared? Are we preparing? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Do we believe what is here? And if we do believe, how is this going to change your life? How will this guide your priorities? your use of your time. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. 
For unto us, it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. What kind of government? What's it going to look like? If we want to participate in that government, what are we going to need to do? The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you know the way to peace? The way to point people to peace. You know, you listen this year, December 25th, when the Pope gives his message about peace. And he'll tell people to pray and light a candle. He's been telling them that for several years, numbers of years. We don't have any more peace in this world than we did then. The way to peace, if you do a little Bible study on it, is to learn to obey the laws of God. You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't lust, you don't covet. You begin to obey the laws of God, and people are going to have to be told that. Somebody's going to have fun sitting down with instructors at West Point or the Air Force Academy or at the Naval Academy and say, fellows and girls, the way to peace does not come out of a gun barrel, as uh, the guy in China made the statement that took over China years ago. He said, peace comes out of a mail. Yeah, he said, peace comes out of a gun barrel. Well, <laughs> it, that's not the way to peace. And so I'm going to get to sit down with the Pope and say, you know, save your candles. <laughs> that's not the way to peace. There is a way that produces peace, but not the way you tried. Somebody's going to have those opportunities. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from that time forward until forever. This is what's coming. We can prepare for that. What's that government going to look like? I can remember in years past uh, discussions in the church. Well, it doesn't matter what kind of form of government as long as we have you know, righteous people. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Go back to Exodus chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law was giving him some advice. Now, we make jokes today about fathers-in-law and mothers-in-law and (laughs) how they want to control our lives and everything else. But Moses listened to the advice that he was given, and he realized that advice was coming from God. But notice what is here. It's talking about the government of God. Verse 16, Moses' job was to make known the statutes of God and his laws. That was his job, leading the Israelites. And Moses' father-in-law said, look, you're wearing yourself out doing it that way. There's a better way. He says down in verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men, men who fear God. As we heard in the sermonette, fear of God is important. The textbook that we're using for our class in Old Testament survey made a very interesting comment. said that to have a right relationship with God, you need to fear God and to love God. Fear is where you fear to disobey, where you respect deeply. And love is where you appreciate, you love, you value, you cherish. But then the, the author makes a very interesting statement. He says, love without fear is sentimentalism. Oh, I love God. 
I know he says something about the Sabbath, but that's Old Testament. That's all done away with. Fear is where you fear to disobey. You respect God very deeply. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And the textbook goes on to say (laughs) that the essence of the covenant in the Old Testament was love, not legalism. Now, this is not a person associated with the church. What he's saying is, his point is, if you love God, you will keep the covenant. And that covenant was, obey me, you'll be blessed. Disobey me, you're (laughs) going to have consequences. And the author says, the essence of the old covenant was not legalism, but love. And yet it's been all twisted around today. It's all the old covenant, that's all legalism. And people get all mixed up today. But you'll notice here, Moses was told, select individuals, able people, people with ability, who've developed their talents and ability. And what he's saying is, attitude's important, but you also have to have ability. (laughs) I think in the past we've appointed people with good attitudes, but had no ability to do various things. As I've told the ministers, don't appoint somebody or select somebody to lead songs that has no sense of rhythm, because they're up here and... And it's embarrassing for them, and it's painful for the audience. (laughs) You know, we try and put square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes. And people with musical ability need to be the ones leading songs, playing music. I can play a few things on the piano, but you wouldn't want to hear me. (laughs) But what he's saying is select people with ability who fear God. We're not going to take liberties with the scriptures. You know, we were told in the Worldwide Church of God before it all came apart, well, we're innovating. <laughs> we're innovating. We're just making administrative changes. Yeah, in the Sabbath, <laughs> in the holy days. See, we're, we're not to be innovating with church doctrine. We're to teach the truth. Men who fear God, women who fear God, men of truth, they tell the truth who hate covetousness. They're not trying to pad their expense accounts and get a lot of things for themselves. You know, these rulers that have gone out of favor, lost their lives in Africa, Gaddafi and some of the other ones, had built huge palaces. And their people are living in squalor. God says, that's not right. That's horrible. That's taking advantage of people. So he's talking about character is extremely important, but notice the other part of the equation here. You shall place them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In other words, you have one person over a group of ten, another person over a group of ten. Then you have another person over five groups there. If you diagram this out, you've got a pyramid. It's a hierarchical form of government, government with various levels of responsibility. And yet you've got people running around today preaching and talking that, you know, we have leveled the pyramid. You're going to level something that God built? Or another one I heard was, we have inverted the pyramid. Now the people are in control. How do you invert or uh, level a pyramid when God designed it to function? You know, businesses don't function that way. You have a chairman, and then you have people that are department heads under that. Jesus Christ selected 12 individuals 
And it appears from Galatians chapter 2, I think about verse 9, that Peter and James and John were a, a, a group of three leading everything. James was the head of the Jerusalem church, but it appears that Peter was the leading apostle. He's mentioned the first time every player, or he's mentioned first every time it's talked about. But there was a structure there. Jesus didn't call a general election for 12 disciples. He appointed those 12 disciples. I mean, this is what we find in the Bible. You can check uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul appointed elders. He didn't call for an election. He appointed them. In Acts 14.23, he went through the churches where he preached. He came back through and appointed elders there. And you find the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And Titus chapter 1, he says, look for individuals with these qualities. Some people think today, if we just get the right character in people, the form of government doesn't matter. That's not what we're told in Exodus chapter 18. And in Deuteronomy 1, Chapter uh, verses 13 through 15, where Moses is rehearsing history. He said, God told me to select various individuals with certain qualities and then appoint them over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. It's a pyramid structure. You can't flatten that. You can't invert it. You can't play games with that. Some people think that democracy is the best form of government. That's what I heard growing up in high school. We have the best form of government in the world. And Winston Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the rest. And so he recognized, Europeans have a different view of democracy than what we do. They think our, they think our elections are chaos, where you spend months telling each other how rotten the other person is, and then one of those rotten people get elected, and you're expected to follow them. <laughs> From, the, from outside, it, this is crazy. It does prevent certain people from getting in office, but it doesn't prevent others from getting in office. Go to uh, Numbers, just to, to see what God's perspective on democracy is, because it has happened before, and these things are in the Bible for our admonition. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Numbers 14. Numbers 14. The Israelites had followed Moses out of Egypt. Then whenever he went up on the mountain for 40 days, it was kind of like, where's Moses? You know, we need another religion, make us a god, whatever. It talks about the children of Israel, verse 2, complained against Moses and Aaron. And the congregation said, if we'd only died in Egypt, they should have just left us alone. At least we had food back there. And of course, Pharaoh had taken the straw away and they had to get their own to make bricks. It was pretty bad. But it's funny how when you look back on things, it doesn't look as bad as it, as it really was. But notice what they did, verse 4. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Here is democracy. We will select our own leader. We don't like the fact that uh, Dr. Meredith is over the church. We will select our own leader. We put this in a modern-day context. They did this. They didn't like Moses, yet God had selected Moses, used Moses, trained Moses. Notice Moses' response, verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation. 
In other words, they were they were embarrassed. But Joshua, the son of uh, Caleb, the son of Nun, and Caleb tore their clothes. Said, "This is terrible. What's happening?" And they spoke to the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through was exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, which flows with milk and honey. Now here was uh, apparently uh, Joshua's comment. Don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. Don't fear. Let's keep on going ahead. Don't rebel against God and his leadership. Then the Lord said, verse 11, to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they reject me? Now, this is how God viewed this, this democratic movement. You're rebelling against God, you're rejecting him, and you're rejecting the leadership that he's placed there. And yet people are being told today in various Church of God groups, we're, we're, we're inverting the pyramid. We're flattening the pyramid. We're going to do it differently. And they feel that they're very deeply part of the church. And yet these things are here for our instruction. Our instruction. Are you preparing to administer the government of God? Do you understand the minister, the government of God? Do you respect the, the government of God? Yet God is molding and fashioning all of us. And he's going to allow us to go off in one tangent or another if we decide to do that. And then we're going to have to kind of pay the piper at the end. There's a judgment coming. We'll have to answer for the decisions that we make. And if we make the wrong one, as one person said to me from one other Church of God group, we're all going to be together in the end. I said, yes, I hope we are. But there are different paths to the end. One goes through the tribulation, and one avoids it. Now, we just need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge the facts. How are you going to be able to administer the government of God if you didn't believe and follow the government that's outlined in the Scriptures, which is hierarchical, has different levels of responsibility, you respect upwards, you respect downwards. Your know, democracy doesn't have a good track record, historically. You know, Plato made an observation, 400 B.C. He says there seems to be a cycle that governments go through. Now, he observed this 400 years B.C., almost 2,400 years ago. He says they start out as monarchies. And a powerful king dies, and his uh, cohorts take over. And you have an oligarchy, a rule by a few. And then you have a democracy, the people take over. And it says democracies have a tendency to turn into anarchy, where everybody wants to have a say. Happened in Greece. We may see something like that happen in America. We'll probably see it in Europe. I saw something on the Internet about a week or so ago. You know, the Germans are very upset about paying the bills for the Greeks. They're not happy about that. But one of the comments on one of the websites says, where is good old Adolf when we need him? Where is good old Adolf when we need him? Some strong man. 
Somebody else made a comment a number of years ago and said, all we need is a strong man and we'll follow him in Germany. The Bible says it's going to happen. A beast is going to come on the scene. This uh, young fellow that, uh, the nobleman that was at the Secretary of Defense in Europe here not too long ago got bounced because he plagiarized his doctor's thesis. He was beginning to say that. He said, we need to take the German armed forces down to the Horn of Africa and go after these pirates and show them who's boss. And he was receiving a warm reception. I don't think the guy's done for it yet. He's very cagey. He resigned honorably. But they may call him back. He may find an avenue. We'll have to see. But there is a feeling in Europe that the democracy stuff is a bunch of baloney. What we need are strong leaders. And Europe is going to get in trouble. They've got a meeting tomorrow, I think, the heads of uh, Europe to talk about their financial crisis. And uh, I think regardless of whatever decision they make, there's, there's going to still be problems over there, which are probably going to spread around the world. Government is extremely important. We need to understand that. We can't play games with the structure that God has given us. We need to be aware of the lessons of history because somebody's going to have the chance to sit down with governmental people in the coming kingdom of God and say, this is why you got into such a mess. This is why. This is what history was there to tell you. This is what the Bible was there to tell you. And this is what we're going to do. Now, if you're not familiar with it, you may have to watch it for a couple of decades. Because <laughs> you tried it in your church and it didn't work. You're going to have to try the right kind. See, we have an opportunity now to prepare the right kind of government in the home. You know, husband is to lead with love, not with a clenched fist. And the wife is to be supportive, not yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We've got to have the right kind of government in the home, in the church, in our nation, and in the world. Jesus Christ is coming back to set up a government. And the clues are all there in the scriptures. Another thing we can prepare to do. Jesus Christ is coming back to establish right religion. Right religion. Christianity is not just one of the great religions of the world. It is the religion. You read a little bit about Islam. It's not a religion of peace. It's not a religion of God. The Allah of Islam is not the God of the Bible. That's not real popular today, but that's a fact. You know, we've got hundreds of different religions. We've got hundreds of different groups that came out of the worldwide church of God. But God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not the author of confusion. In Branson, we had three different groups that I know of, of the church of God that were meeting there. If you were part of the Chamber of Commerce in Branson, Missouri, you probably think, here's one group and another group and another group. They don't talk to each other, but they're all claiming to be churches of God. What kind of a witness is that? Confusion. But I'm sure everybody that was in the different groups were, were very sincere and feeling they were doing the right thing. But you look at it from God's perspective. God is not the author of confusion. First Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about you should all be of the same mind and the same judgment. 
if we were of the same mind and if we were of the same judgment, we would be together. The reason we're not together is we're not of the same mind and we're not of the same judgment. And in many cases, not of the same spirit. If we were of the same spirit, somebody wouldn't be saying, we're going to level the pyramid or we're going to flatten it or we're going to invert it. That's not of God. That's contrary to Scripture. So we've got to be prepared to establish the right form of religion based on the Scriptures. You know, this world is going to learn that there is a real God. You've got people writing books today about the God delusion, these atheists and so on. They don't, they don't believe in God and they make fun of God. And yet, and you just look at a couple of Scriptures in Isaiah 46 where God is talking to Isaiah and basically saying, here's how I'm going to address critics, and here's how you can address critics that don't believe in God. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. So remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, stand up and acknowledge the facts. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none other like me or none like me. I am able to declare the end from the beginning. I declare the future. I predict the future. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, I declare and I'm going to bring it to pass saying, my counsel, my plan, my purpose shall stand. I'm going to accomplish what I predicted that I would. I will do my pleasure. You can go through the Old Testament and find some very interesting examples. In Exodus chapter 8, God was beginning to soften up the Egyptians. He told Moses, turn the water into blood. Pharaoh said, that's nothing. My guys can do the same thing. Fellas, turn the water into blood. And they did. Moses said, I'm going to bring a bunch of frogs. Pharaoh says, no big deal. Fellas, make some frogs. Moses said, I'm going to strike the nation with lice. Pharaoh says, go ahead, boys. Fellas, what's the matter? They said, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. Pharaoh had to learn that God was real probably really sunk in whenever he saw the water coming down on him going through the Red Sea. The Egyptians learned, but then they forgot. Nebuchadnezzar made an image, had Daniel's three friends all before him because they wouldn't bow down to it. So he says, I've had it with these guys. Throw them in a furnace. Make it really hot. So they throw these three guys in the furnace. A little bit later, they come up, Neb. There's four in there. <laughs> four! Read his response. Read his response to that. He concluded, no other God can deliver like this. Deliver human beings out of a furnace like that. Nebuchadnezzar made this big boast. Look at Babylon that I've made. Then he went insane, almost like that. Seven years later. He realized, wow, there is a God in heaven that does things like that. The king of Babylon. 
that had built the seven wonders of the world, or one of the wonders of the world over there, the Hanging Gardens. Then Darius the Mede, Daniel chapter 6. He realized Daniel was framed, but he had to stick with his word. He threw Daniel in the lion's den. Then he prayed and fasted all night. God, please deliver this guy. Please, please. Runs up to the lion's den the next morning. Daniel, you in there? I'm here. And his conclusion was, wow, Daniel's God really does deliver people. See, God was teaching various nations, various prominent people that he exists. And many people today are not sure whether or not God exists. Yet maybe as a homework assignment, go home tonight and read Ezekiel chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 7. Where God says, my people have turned away from me. But the time is going to come when I intervene. They will know that I am God. That phrase is used about 60 or 70 times in the book of Ezekiel. When God begins to intervene, they will know that I am God. And part of our job as a church is to explain to people what is coming down the road. And Mr. Meredith has mentioned this numerous times. That Mr. Armstrong was telling the British back in the 50s, if you don't change, if you don't repent, God is going to take your seagates away from you. You're going to lose them. And they have. And part of our job today is tell the United States, unless you turn around and repent from this nonsense of gay marriages, that men can marry men and women can marry women. You know, the president has signed a decree about once every year declaring June as the uh, Gay Pride Month. He says, I'm proud to be able to declare the month of June by presidential proclamation for gays and lesbians and transsexuals and whatever. It's hard to believe that that's happening in, quote, unquote, the Christian nation of America where teachers have been have lost their jobs because they had a Bible on their desk in the classroom. This is crazy. But it's happening today in America, a nation of God's chosen people, and they're turning their back on God. Ezekiel chapter 7 basically says, you've had it. You've had it. And I'm going to intervene, and you're going to have to face the music. And I'm not going to change. And it says, you will know that I am God. Now, God's not up there with this big baseball bat. Just wait and let me at him, let me at him, let me at him. <laughs> no, he said, let's reason together, Isaiah says. Look, I've given you blessings. I've done, walked interference for you. I've done this for you and done that for you. And then you turn your back on me. Yes, there will be a time of judgment coming. So Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish right religion on this earth. People are going to have to learn there is a real God. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Have you proven those things to yourself? Have you proven those things to yourself? Have you taught these things to your children? I came across a book recently entitled... uh, 
Boys Will Be Boys. It's written by a mother and a pediatrician. She's an MD. And she writes with a very interesting biblical perspective. She said religion is important to boys and it's also important to girls growing up because it says it gives them a foundation to stand on. It spells out what's right and what's wrong. And if we don't give our young people that foundation, then they're lost because they're being told in school there are no absolutes. There's no such thing as right and wrong. That's what you make up in your own mind. It's what you feel comfortable with. That's wrong. And that will get people in trouble. If you follow that philosophy, there are such things that are right. And there are such things as wrong. I gave a sermon at the feast. I'll probably give it here a little bit later. Just talking about Christian masculinity and Christian femininity. And the macho idea today is if you're a man, smoke Marlboros. You get drunk once in a while. Chase women, drive fast cars. And you don't have to add up to your own up to your responsibilities. You do whatever you want. And if you want to be a with it woman, you do whatever you want. Smoke, drink, chase guys. If you accept that philosophy, you're going to get burned. And burned badly. One of the churches I pastored, a number of young girls. We left the area. I asked, what happened to so-and-so? Well, she got pregnant. Why? Well, she was out at a bar. They wanted to experience what the world is like. And then you wind up with responsibilities. Where's the guy? Who knows? This is the world's philosophy, and it bites. And it bites hard. We've got people that sat in church for 20 years. They left. In some cases, they're coming back with scars and bruises. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be out there. And then they learn the hard way. And that hurts. I remember one young girl came to me one time. So I met this guy, you know, he just got out of the Navy. And he's a wonderful guy. He's not in the church, but, you know, he loves me. I said, I don't think you ought to do this. You've got to make up your own mind. But please don't. About a year and a half later, she came back holding a little baby. She said, my husband's beating me. He doesn't like my religion. I, I didn't say, I told you so. But boy, you're tempted to. But she wasn't interested in listening. And there are guys that do the same thing. God doesn't want us to have to learn lessons that way. There's a saying, it says, experience is the best teacher. But what's the rest of that? But it's a fool school. In other words, you could learn. You could learn and avoid these problems. Final comments here. One of the missions of the church today is to recapture true values. Matthew 17, verse 11. Again, it's a prophecy about John the Baptist or someone coming in the role of John the Baptist of restoring true values, recapturing true values, restoring a right knowledge and a right approach to everything. 
I realize as we look around, especially for young people and some of the adults in the church, it seems to be so exciting outside and we don't have any fun. We can't go to football games on Saturdays. We can't do all these things. Think about what you can do and what you're going to be able to do. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Paul was telling people to come out of this world and be separate. Don't get involved with it. Now, we have to work in this world. We have to learn to deal with people. But a Christian is admonished to come out of this world's society because this is Satan's world. Just think about the things that we're going to restore. There was a study done very recently looking at young people and said many young people today have no concept of morality. No concept of right or wrong. It's just whatever you think is okay. And we didn't do the study. But this is the result of sitting in classrooms where the teacher tells them there are no absolutes. Whatever you think is right is okay. Well, this is totally wrong. So we're going to have to restore a right sense of morality, help people understand there is right and there is wrong. There is true and there is false. If you put this in a, in a teaching context, try and get away with that context in a math class. Well, how do you know one and one is two? That's your opinion. I've got a different opinion. Well, you're going to flunk. Because <laughs> there are absolutes. Tell an engineer that. There are no absolutes. Well, I can design this anyway. I'll use this weak steel. It's cheaper. Yeah, and the building falls down. Whose fault is it? See, there are absolutes. You hold somebody out over the edge of a building. There are no absolutes. Watch. (laughs) Gravity is pretty absolute. See, this is nuts. But we're going to have to restore a right sense of absolutes, of morality, a right sense of music. You listen to what passes as music today. It's vulgar. It's loud. It's dirty. And yet the special music we had at the feast was inspiring. Because you could understand the words. <laughs> and it wasn't this driving boom, 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 boom. Oh, sorry. <laughs> See what that beat does? <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> But, you know, soothing music doesn't bring a response like that. <laughs> but other types of things do. We ate out at the feast there in, uh, in Glenwood Springs, an older hotel. And they didn't have any music. But we went there two or three times because you could hear the person on the other side of the table and understand what they were saying. I remember one time we took some guests to a restaurant in Phoenix we had to yell at each other across the table like that because we couldn't hear. The music was so pounding and so loud. We're going to have a chance to restore right government. Think about dress today. You know, for girls, the more you can show, the better. The more sexy you can be, so the world says, the better. For guys to be really with it and dress, you've got to have a scruffy beard that you haven't shaved in two or three days. You've got to have baggy pants where your bottom's hanging out. 
I was walking behind a kid at the airport in London, and we're both running for the plane, and he's holding his wallet. <laughs> Otherwise, he'd lost his pants. <laughs> another guy someplace that might have been here in Charlotte he's going into a McDonald's or something and his bottom was literally sticking out of his pants and he didn't care <laughs> or your pants have got to be ten sizes too big <laughs> somebody's got to restore right values in terms of dress in terms of music um, <clears throat> language you know, many people today you can't understand what they're saying for one thing, and then you don't want to hear what they're saying for the other things. Because they, huh, yeah, what, huh? <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before. That a couple of years ago after the feast, <clears throat> I think we're down in uh, Myrtle Beach or Sunset Beach, but I met my son, Scott and Dinah, after the feast, we spent a couple of days in Charleston, and we did a boat ride on the bay and toured some of the old buildings and so on. And as I was driving out of Charleston, <clears throat> I saw the sign, uh, the Citadel, Military College of South Carolina. I thought, you know, I've, I've never seen the school. <clears throat> we actually stayed in a motel that used to be one of the <laughs> buildings for the school, and the motel is taking it over now. So I thought I'd drive in, walk around, and a tour, campus tour, was just about ready to go. So I was sitting there listening. I said, can I go along? <clears throat> and this young cadet, I think it was his senior, uh, was giving a tour. He was dressed sharp. His shoes were shined. His hair was combed. He was clean-shaven. I could understand what he was saying. <laughs> he walked around campus. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Good afternoon, sir. I said, are you going to be a soldier? He said, no, I'm going to be a business major. I am a business major. I'm going into business. Said about only about 35% of the students now go into the military. But here was a kid that could have been an ambassador college student 15 or 20 years ago. Because our students look like that. You know, the, the guys wore ties in some cases to classes or sports shirts. The girls were dressed in nice dresses. But that's not the way people dress today. See, we're going to have an opportunity to recapture true values in all kinds of areas, if we catch the vision, if we see what's coming, if we get focused on that, and we're focused on that and not just our own personal problems, that we're preparing for the coming kingdom of God. Brethren, this was the vision that motivated Jesus Christ. This was why he came, to become the savior of the world to preach a gospel about a coming kingdom of God, to call and train disciples. And they went out and then did the same thing. This is what motivated the early church for about the first 300 years was this exciting possibility of ruling as kings and priests on this earth, of changing the world. Acts 17, it says the apostles went around and they literally turned the world upside down. We're going to have an opportunity to turn the world right side up if we catch that vision, if we're focused, if we use the next 12 months to prepare to restore a right government on this earth, to restore right religion, a knowledge of the true God, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, to teach the laws of God to the entire world, 
That's what you and I have been called to do. That's why we went to the feast, hopefully. And that's why we'll go to the feast next year, hopefully, (laughs) for these same reasons, to get a better view, a better vision, a better grasp on that vision of the coming kingdom of God. Let's use the next 12 months so that we can be in the kingdom of God together.